past and present podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on February 22, 2019 at the Centre d'études Tunis Semat. In this episode, Todd Shepard, professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, talks about his book entitled Sex, Friends, and Arab Men, 1962-1979. The book is called France, Sex, and Arab Men. And the premise of the book is to focus on a particular period in French history. That period begins, in my argument, with 1962 with Algeria's independence. And it closes down in important ways and therefore ends, as far as I'm concerned, in around 1979 with the Iranian Revolution. So you get, hopefully, the point that Iran is not Arab. So this is part of why this matters. The backstory of this analytically is, on the one hand, an argument about the real centrality of Algeria in particular, overseas colonial empire, and how French people govern themselves, which I've been worked on a lot but also thought of themselves and thought of themselves in relationship to other things. The kind of theoretical point or reference or touchstone here is Edward Said's work on Orientalism, which you know is a premise on the idea that claims and arguments that assert that they're scientific, based in research, academic, insofar as they're attempting to describe an Orient that does not exist, bring and lump together people, countries, traditions, cultures, in ways that even as it has some accuracy in particular points, primarily works to describe what he defines as an other. It's a discourse about the other, the orient, but again, primarily works to give definition to the observer. And in this case, in his understanding of Orientalism, does so primarily then in terms of the West, l'Occident, and notably France, in his discussion, France and Great Britain. One of the key sub-themes of his discussion of Orientalism that's been taken up by a number of other scholars is sexual Orientalism. You know, the questions about sexual distinctions and differences and particularities that have been described as typifying the so-called Orient are one of the key strands of discourse, not just about fantasy, but make claims made in terms of scientific scholarly expertise about what distinguishes the Orient from the West. Now, I take out another aspect that is highlighted in Orientalism, which is premised on the understanding that all of these claims are in some ways inaccurate, despite their accuracy and their kind of pointed anchor in evidence, for example, in the understanding that he has of Orientalism and proposes something that could be accurate and true for a particular group of people, some aspect of a given society, some strata of their social classes, is presumed to apply to all people. So it makes generalizations. But he, he highlights two big distinctions in the point of view of the observer. The Orient is seen as different, but there can be what he would call, and describes and others have too, Arabophilic or Islamophilic claims. I.e. the West is different from these people, but they are superior. They are better. They should be a source of inspiration. This is always a quite small minoritarian perspective, with the vast majority being, we could call it, Arabophobic or Islamophobic pointing to what's wrong with how the differences that mark the space between us, the West, and them, the Orient, how they are incapable of government, incapable of self-control, driven by Islam, driven, therefore, by religious irrationality in ways that the West is not. 
So these two poles are worth holding on to, of the Islamophilic or Arabophilic, the Islamophobic uh, and the Arabophobic, with the second being dominant. So what I tried to focus on was based on what I saw as massive evidence in the period after Algeria's independence and through the 60s and 70s, that is a period that also has historical importance in other discussions, identified often as the so-called sexual revolution. The sexual revolution, a period then of late 20th century history, where there were massive shifts in how people talked about sex, in the frequency of discussions of sex and sexuality, and then also pretty clear evidence, massive changes in activity, but also how those discussions took place. Questions that had remained in silence became widely discussed. Those wide discussions shifted from being largely dominated by voices that condemned what was seen as aberrant, should not be spoken about, was perverse, was sinful, was problematic, to an increasing preponderance in some cases, or at least a complete a massive increase in the presence of arguments that insisted these things were acceptable. These things should not be the concern of other people. They should not be the concern of moralists. And alongside that, the growth of, two to t of a, an entire tendency of discussions, which insisted that these new forms of sex, these atypical, these minoritarian, these often described as perverse forms of sexuality, in fact, could bring good. And for some people who identified themselves as sexual revolutionaries, that these were necessary to actually change the world to make it a better place for all people. So this period then, that I'm, what I'm interested in is this intersection between the escape or the collapse, the escape from or the collapse of France's overseas empires, notably its defeat in Algeria, how the aftermath of that and French efforts then to think about and grapple with what empire meant and what did it mean now to live in a world in which this empire, this control of other people, this clear set of indications that France was superior, dominant to Algeria, to the Maghreb, that France not only should but did govern these people, that had ended. How do you think about that in a war that involved much violence, and how that intersected with the emergence of this so-called revolution. And what I try to trace out then is two big discussions that are in conversation because contradictory. One we could call Arabophilic and one we could call Arabophobic. So a couple particularities here. I think in many ways this fits into a larger history of so-called sexual orientalism. The particularity of these discussions in the 60s and 70s is that overwhelmingly they made claims about things happening in France itself. France stripped of its overseas empires. Rather than discussions of Arabia, of North Africa, of the Maghreb, of Tunisia, of Morocco, of Algeria, they were almost all describing things that happened in France itself. At the same time, almost all of these references often implicitly, quite often explicitly referenced Algeria. So Algeria far more than Morocco and Tunisia. Finally, one really odd particularity, this is really the focus of the book, is that these references almost all spoke about men. And this is odd, because usually Orientalist discussions, these obsessions about differences, fixate on women. The veiled woman is an obsession in Western discussions and Orientalist discussions. The harem, le serai, l'odalisque, the dancing woman. And as you can see from those discussions, in discussions of women, these vary from being Arab or Muslim or Oriental women as extremely sexual to being extremely puritan, hating sex. Those are, again, one of the things that's important about Orientalism, like these other discussions, is it tends to rely on poles, binaries that are extreme, and to deny the multiplicity, the complexity, the individuality of all the ways that people would fit themselves in between these two broad stereotypical poles. So here in this moment, it's men. Additionally, within the discussion of so-called males or men, the focus is almost exclusively on the hyper-viral, the too manly, the potentially violent, over 
run with desire, lust. Rather than the other figure that has always been present in discussion, Orientalist claims about in kind of evocations of the so-called Orient, which is the Ephebe, the Arab boy, the effeminate. These are, again, two figures that have long played a role in Western kind of fantasies and claims about the Orient, particularly about North Africa. There is either the man who is too manly, who touches women, who may have sex with young children, with boys, with anything, and then the young boy, not manly at all, perhaps dancing, perhaps a prostitute, perhaps open to having sex, certainly effeminate in many ways. That second figure is also almost absent. So it's a period then where the dominant discussion of sexualization of so-called Arabs, and again, the term itself is important, why they use the term Arabs rather than Muslims, or rather than the more complex ethnic reality of North Africa, is constantly referencing Algeria, constantly focused on men rather than women, and within the kind of binome, the, this, this space of men rather than women, of the too virile, the too sexual, rather than the, the ephebe, the too effeminate. And here again, then, what I'm intrigued by is how this period is shaped by discussions then, which makes them more intense and more frequent, between two different poles. What becomes the more durable, what lasts, is that which seeks to repurpose, to shift the longer history of sexual orientalism into a story that's usable for this new era. Because this new era is one in which France no longer controls North Africa. French empire is no longer based in Algeria itself. The French have lost and been defeated. And this is an argument that will focus on the Arab invasion of France. It will focus on Arab men in particular as a source of danger, and a danger that is usually fixated and described in sexual terms. Invasion itself, the invasion of France, which of course is not happening on the battlefield. People are not debarking with arms on the streets of France, but invasion that infiltrates, enters into the implication is French families, French bodies, those of French women, potentially those of French men, boys, girls. So a danger that's constantly highlighted of rape, of people that are too promiscuous, of people that touch women, that threaten, eventually the discussion will become clear about this, sexual violence, but are also too sexual, and thus are constantly present in ways that disturb the French. This will be proposed immediately at the end of the war and crystallized in a discussion on what's then a very small far-right frame. A far right that's anchored itself around the defense of l'Algérie française at a moment when most other French people who had vast, the vast majority of whom had defended that proposal, Algeria is France, Algeria is France, have given it up. So the OAS, the secret army organization that was a terrorist group, but others trying to keep and hold on to enforce the French to remain in Algeria despite the agreement to leave, they will fixate on Arab male deviance as something that explains what's going on. And this is originally conjoined in their discussions with French deviants. So they will describe, for example, the summer of 1962 when <coughs> FLN troops are entering into an agreement with the French to take over and occupy Algiers, Orwan, Warren, Constantine, as in fact a period when the French press is remaining silent, is covering up the most important story, which is that dozens and dozens of French soldiers are being raped by Fedayeen. That is, they will describe a period when this Arab aberrance, this too sexual violence, this too sexual desire, has been met on the other side by French weakness, by a French masculinity that's too effeminate, too unable to defend itself. It is they'll present and describe the history of the Algerian war, the history of empire, is one in which, at the end, French men lost a battle with Algerian men, which was premised on who is the real man, that there's something wrong with the French. And so the far-right discussion here would fixate in particular on the figure of Charles de Gaulle as an effeminate body, an old man, someone willing to be taken by Algerians. And this will develop over time. It will relatively quickly, and particularly around May 1968, 
switch its focus somewhat and begin to talk less about the Gaulish state, about the Fifth Republic as the problem, as something that's too weak, too unmanly, to resist this aberrant, perverse maleness that Algerian immigrants in particular are bringing to France, this threat being posed to France, this of it becoming an Algerian France run by these men, to intend to, to focus instead on the threat of the leftists. So May 1968 as this period when we know that the new left that had emerged in the 1960s and that came to real visibility around the events of May 1968 that shut down the country had direct inspiration from the Algerian Revolution in particular. And this is one of the things that interests me and allows us to think about the second theme. So the far left, the far right at this period that is primarily fixing its gaze, its attentions, its vilifications on the new left and talking less about Charles de Gaulle and the Fifth Republic. So this opens up space for across the 1970s, a whole series of discussions in the popular press that will highlight insane exaggerations of claims about sexual violence, of claims about sexual danger that are linked to North African men in France. So to give you one example before I shift the next discussion, one sociological study of all the press reports about criminality in the regional press of the five biggest regional newspapers in France in the year 1975. The scholar, this is, he's working in 1980. He counts up all of the articles that have any relationship to criminality whatsoever. And he then identifies within them all of the references to immigration, to immigrants, and in particular to North Africans, and counts them up. In every category, he distinguishes the different crimes. And in every category, except for one, his analysis confirms a kind of critique of the newspapers, that they were too left-wing, that they were minimizing the implication of immigrants in criminality. They were undercounting. And so he's using two basic statistics, the percentage of immigrants in the French population and the percentage of immigrants in French prisons. When they're talking about theft, when they're talking about murder, when they're talking about corruption, all of these different measures, they report less, lower numbers of North Africans, of immigrants being involved in these crimes than any reasonable estimate would have based on these other measures. The only category where this is not the case is sexual violence. And in sexual violence, he shows that it's two and a half times the maximum estimation of the implication of North Africans, of immigrants in sexual crimes is around 12 to 15 percent. The percentage of newspaper articles that talk about sexual violence in which a North African man is involved is around 36 or 37 percent. It's a massive exaggeration, a massive effort to constantly present Arab invasion of France in really sexual terms. Now, as I mentioned, in May 1968, this emergence of a new left, a new left that in part, in really important part, draws direct inspiration from the Algerian Revolution. And in fact, over the course of the 1970s, this becomes somewhat broader. There's a real inspiration on, a new, on the new left to the so-called Arab Revolution. The Arab Revolution that has at its heart the Algerian Revolution, but has other aspects as well. Nasserism, the hopes from Egypt. In the early 1970s, the presence of workers, North African immigrant workers in France, who, they are, who are described as the most revolutionary fringe, those who could really, unlike French workers who become too quiescent, could be ready for revolution. But also, of course, the Palestinian Revolution, the Sahara Revolution, the things Polisar, these whole set of different things which allow people to talk about the Arab world as a model for revolutionary change. And this is important in thinking about this second tendency, what we could call, because it's also very stereotypical, an Arabophilic version of this obsession with the sexual, the 
erotic differences of Algerians that again fixates on Algerian men in particular, or what they'll term Arab men. They're looking to Arab men as a source of revolutionary inspiration, but in terms that also include, and in fact, in many cases, predominate around questions of gender. Feminists are looking to the Algerian and the Arab revolution as a model for how to change the world for the better in France and in the West. Gay liberationists, sexual liberationists, look to North Africa, look to the Arab men as a model for how to make a better world to how to make a revolution. That is to say, in this moment, it's a very reductive and stereotypical view. Most Arab men don't fit these categories in any way. But this Arabophilic, this celebration of the Arab revolution, is premised on an idea of change. And that's what's different. Usually, the kind of Arabophilic or Islamophilic versions of Orientalism are modeled on what we could call Oriental despotism. They tend to fixate on ideas of North Africans, Arabs, Muslims, have a closer, are more spiritual, have a closer relationship to nature, have a deeper sense of how the world really is. They're not caught up in technology or logic or things like that. This, this should be an inspiration to us. In this moment, this stereotypical view of the Arab man as a heroic revolutionary figure that incarnates how to change the world is presented as political. So I think that is interesting. But so looking at these claims, a whole set of claims, claims from gay liberationists, for example, are the most striking and those are the ones that I focus on in the book. They claim that because of a society which is much more sexually liberal in terms of male sexuality, that is North Africa, combined with a situation in Europe where people, men, find themselves there in terms of actual poverty as immigrants, not having access to resources, but also faced with racism, where French women refuse to have anything to do with them. This produces what they call a condition of sexual misery. So because they come from a society that's less judgmental, more open than Western society that's described is very puritanical, very judgmental, and they're in a situation of sexual misery. They are willing to, and many then of these immigrant men, it's said, will have sex with European homosexual men. The gay liberation movement will take this and say this is a stereotype, perhaps, but it also is a reality. And it's a reality that allows then the gay liberation movement, which claims that it itself is revolutionary, to have a connection with the most truly revolutionary force in France, the Arab men. So together, the whole French revolutionary movement can draw from this connection to change the world, to make France a better place. So you have these two very political minorities. On the one, the far right, which is arguing that France at its heart is threatened by the Arab invasion. It's being led by lust-driven, sexually motivated, sexually violent Arab men who are coming into this country and taking taking advantage of French male weakness. And on the other, this group of sexual revolutionaries claiming that, look, no, this is a chance. This is a chance to upend sexual norms to make the world a better place. Now, then the actual reality is this produces these two, you know, extreme ideological sets of claims, each carried by a relatively small group of active militants committed to this, actually begins to produce a lot of debate. So there's a lot of films, a lot of movies, you know, things like dupont la Joie, things like Diablo Monte, things like The Last Tango in Paris, the Daniel Tango of Paris, a whole set of films that put into on the screen, depictions of Arab male sexuality, primarily in ways that celebrate the possibilities, but also point out the dangers, not of Arab men themselves, but of French racism towards Arab men. This becomes a primary point of discussion then of how does French racism work. But at the same time, then a whole set of other discussions that reemerge, questions about prostitution, which are heavily linked to the presence of Arab men in France itself, these have new conditions for prostitution, discussions then about forms of sexual violence that focus on two questions. A, 
new attention to the question of sodomy, which in the 1970s has increasingly been discussed as a modern form of sexual activity. So all the new pornographic magazines portray it as something that modern people are doing, and they therefore compare it to the usual stereotype of sodomy, which links it to the Muslim world, to the Arab world, because of Quranic precepts about sex when women are pregnant. It said there's an ancient, there's a feudal form, but then there's also this modern form. There's something we can draw inspiration from. And then finally, a way that sexuality and violence are being connected in discussions of rape and sexual violence. Rape and sexual violence that are a real focus on the new left, on the far left, who point out, as indicated by that sociological study, that the most typical form of French racism towards North Africans is unjust, unfair accusations of sexual violence. This is what North African men in France have to face constantly. Accusations that they're being too flirtatious, that they're sexually harassing, that they're sexually attacking French women in particular. And again, the film Dupont-la-Joie uh, is a particular touchstone of this kind of set of claims here. But then, a more problematic discussion in the late 1970s, when French feminists try to raise concerns and get people to focus on the question of rape, of sexual violence, and to take it seriously. And although they succeed, and they succeed in part by pushing the courts to put it to a higher level, to take it more seriously, what happens is all of the men, except in one, the most kind of famous case, but all of the men in the first cases that become the focus of popular discussion and press attention, all of them involve so-called Arab men. Most of them involve North African men, but even when they don't, for example, one key case when an Egyptian student was being accused of rape, the press coverage treats it as if he's from North Africa, as if he's actually Algerian. Now, feminists begin by pointing out this is completely the basis of racism. The vast majority of men accused of rape in general are Frenchmen. They're more well-off men. And this is about racism, the fact that we're the people, the men that we're seeing in these particular trials are North African. But it causes a big divide between anti-racist movements and between sexual liberationist movements who both say you shouldn't be looking to the state. This is inevitably going to lead to forms of racism. The people that are going to be the most hurt are North African men, are poor men, are proletarian men, and feminists who say we need to pursue this combat. And so for me, the ways that this works out leads to a division. Feminists who previously had been very focused on linking their struggle to the Algerian revolution, to the figure of like using the UU, for example, UUU, as the preeminent sign of being in, in demonstrations, had linked themselves to the model of the Algerian revolution as a point that of a successful movement that had overcome and defeated the French state, begin to give up all such references, where other movements stop thinking of themselves as feminists. And this is why I end my book in the late 1970s. The Arabophobic, the Islamophobic, those that rejected the so-called Arab invasion, they had grown in importance and shaped public discussions, and they would continue on. But by the late 1970s, this fixation on the heroic Algerian man, the heroic Arab man as a source of revolutionary inspiration, had begun to fade away. It is based on a stereotype. And that stereotype, trying to use it as a revolutionary figure, exposed both critiques of racism. These gay liberationists were proposing a stereotype that's based on objectification, eroticization, racialization of people that does doesn't describe them as real people. You shouldn't be doing this. It's not the basis for a political act. Or for feminists, the actual encounter with, well, should we stop pursuing rape simply because, because of racism? Because of racism, the men being caught up in this are North African. Should we therefore stop doing this altogether? They say no. It becomes too complicated, too confusing. So the figure of heroic Algerian man is an incarnation of sexual revolution. An incarnation of feminism begins to fade away. And here is where 1979 comes in. Because the way that the victory of the Islamic Revolution in Iran at the beginning of 1979 is very quickly described in France, particularly on the left, focuses on two figures. One is the woman and the Iranian revolution, its victory in February by early March, on March 8th, 1979, 
across the French press, but particularly in places on the left, like Le Monde and Liberation, is described as the imposition of the veil on Iranian women. It is being resisted by Iranian women, who are being punished, who are being beaten up in the street. And the second figure, the homosexual, a series of executions of homosexuals across Iran that's linked up with this. So in both cases, there are efforts to say, well, it's more complicated. These are not men being executed for homosexuality. These are men being executed for pedophilia or for being pimps of male prostitutes. But what emerges then is a story of the Iranian revolution as crushing women's freedoms, as crushing homosexual and sexual freedoms. That is, for me, this kind of consolidates, A, a new fixation on the veil. But in talking about the veil, then we're talking, of course, about women. We're also talking about women as victimized. So a shift away from a focus on the Arab man, a stereotyped vision, but which presented the Arab man as the incarnation of heroic revolutionary masculinity that could be a model from which the West and the French in particular could learn to the return to a more classic Orientalist story of the West has lessons to teach them. We can pick which Muslims support these are not Arabs, which Muslims need our help. So also then the reemergence of Islam is around 1979. Discussions on the left in particular of the Algerian revolution, but also the Afghan revolution, the Iraqi revolution, all of these moments in the Muslim or Arab world that had been seen in the 60s and 70s as inspirational for how do you change the world, now were pointed to as, oh no, in fact, these were steps backwards. Because now we see that they were really not about revolution, they were about Islam. So for me, this closes off a period. It no longer becomes even thinkable in France that the Arab man could be an incarnation of sexual freedom, could be a model for feminism, for how to change the world for the better. But at the same time, this intensification of discussion about the Arab man continues to persist, but primarily linked then to this negative fixation on the Arab invasion, on Arab masculinity as something linked to questions of violence and sexual violence and sexual harassment and domination of women. So that's how the book works out. That's the kind of general structure of it. I could talk to you about evidence. I mean, it's there's tons of different, I was really interested in different types of sources and legal, so I worked a lot on police archives to really show the difference between claims about sexual violence and what the police knew to be true, etc. But an attempt then to move primarily from an initial story focused on first the far right, then sexual liberationists. In both cases, they're fantasies that were linked to political projects about how France should change. And then finally, the last half of the book kind of focuses on these various domains around the sexual revolution in which this figure of the Arab man really emerged. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.